the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. A social distancing tip. While the CDC urges you to avoid close contact, like hugging or shaking hands, there are other non-physical ways to say hello. Wave, wink, use sign language, salute, smile, give the peace sign, throw up an air high five, do jazz hands. Remember, stay a minimum of six feet or two arms length away from others and stay home if you can. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Ladies and gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, the Bickerson. <laughs> For once, the walls of the Bickerson's apartment do not resound with the persistent snoring of husband John, more's the pity. There can be only one reason for this astounding phenomenon. John Bickerson is not home. Two o'clock in the morning finds Mrs. Bickerson on the telephone with Sister Clara. Let's listen. What did you say, Blanche? I said I haven't heard from John since he left for work. You'd think he'd telephone me or something. Well, maybe he tried to call. You've had the phone tied up for over an hour, Blanche. You've called me three times. He's never done this before. I think he wants to upset me. He gets so angry every time I spend a dollar. He says I'm the biggest spendthrift in California. Am I, Clara? I don't think so. Well, John does. And you know how careful I am about money. Yes, well, I have to give the baby his bottle. You do? What time is it there in New York? It's almost 5.30 in the morning. Georgie gets a bottle every two hours now. He's four weeks old. He isn't gaining much, though. Well, what does he weigh? 61 pounds. I don't like the doctor we have now. He thinks George is too heavy. Well, I think he's the cutest little thing I ever saw. Oh, did John's shoes fit him all right? Well, they pinch a little in the toes. Oh, well, you can get them fixed. Oh, I think John's here. Goodbye, Clara. John! I can't find the blasted light switch. Oh, I'm so glad you're home, sweetheart. I'm in here. Huh? Never mind the lights. Come to bed, darling. Oh, I must have the wrong apartment. Uh, excuse me, madam. John, come back here. Oh, hello. Where have you been? Working. Let me get undressed. I'm exhausted. Why didn't you call? Don't throw your good coat on the floor. John! You can sweep it up in the morning. No call. No message. No nothing. Why didn't you call? Didn't have a nickel. You did, too. You had a quarter in your pocket this morning. Who did you take to dinner tonight? The whole chorus from Earl Carroll's That's Me Boy, Diamond Jim Bickerson. Don't be so funny. Oh, I'm not funny. I'm exhausted. 
I bet you never even thought of calling me. Other men call their wives. If Mel Shaw leaves the house for even five minutes, he calls Louise. Calls her what? That lot you care about me. I've been sitting here worrying myself into a stew. What did you eat? Stew. John Vickerson, let me look at you. Are you sure you've been in the office till now? Well, where do you think I've been? I don't know. You didn't pass a cocktail bar on your way home, did you? I never pass a cocktail bar. That's what I thought. You had a drink. I did not. You had more than one. I didn't have any. Then why are you trying to take your pants off over your head? What pants? This is the sweater you made for me out of your old slacks. I'm the only man in town with a V-neck seat. Stop complaining. It keeps you warm. Put out the lights, Blanche. I can't hold my eyes open. John, you're not going to sleep in that horrible old sheepskin vest. Well, I'm cold. Take it off. It looks hideous. Nobody sees it. Now you just get up and put on some pajamas. I hate pajamas. They strangle me. Well, you can't wear that thing. Can too. What if there's a fire? I won't go. Good night, Blanche. You just get out of that bed and hang up your clothes. Don't leave them for me. Blanche, I'm sleepy. I'm always crawling under the dresser and picking up your collar buttons. I pick up your ties and I pick up your handkerchiefs. What do you think I am, a vacuum cleaner? No, Blanche, a vacuum cleaner can be turned off. Look, Blanche, do me a favor, will ya? I worked 18 hours today. Just let me close my eyes for a couple of hours, will ya? I'm afraid. The minute you fall asleep, you'll start snoring. No, I won't snore. I never snore. How can you say that? You've never missed a single night since the second day we were married. You snore on Monday, you snore on Tuesday, on Wednesday you snore, on Thursday you snore, so what'll you do tonight? Oh, for the love of... (sighs) Nobody would believe it. I'm married to a cellar pump. John, John, you promised you wouldn't snore. And the minute you close your eyes, you start it. John! Lynch, what do you want from me? I won't stand for it. Go sleep in the guest room. We haven't got a guest room. If you were a good husband, you'd see that we had two guest rooms. You used to have plenty of ambition before we were married. Whatever mm. happened to your get up and go? He got up and went. I might have known you like you are. Selfish, inconsiderate, thoughtless. You didn't even send me a Valentine card. St. Valentine's Day isn't until tomorrow. It's still tonight. Tonight was yesterday. Today is tomorrow. What? And I know you didn't send a card because you didn't send me one last year. Well, I forgot last year. You always forget. You forgot my birthday. You. I bet you don't even know when you married me, do you? No, I don't. John Bickerson... You don't know when you married me? When? Oh, I thought you said why. I suppose you think you great catch. I could have married a half dozen of the wealthiest men in town. No, I had to fall for your smooth talk. You kept calling me your buried treasure, didn't you? Didn't I what? Didn't you always call me your buried treasure? Maybe I did. Well, what have you got to say now? I'm sorry I dug you up. Good night, Blanche. Sorry you dug me up. There wasn't another girl in our crowd who would ever have given you a second look. Oh, I don't know about that. Most of those dames thought I had what it takes. Well, maybe you had it. But who took it? And what did I get out of the 
this marriage. Jewels? No. Clothes? No. Money? No. What did I get? No. A one-room apartment and a leaky icebox. A leaky icebox? Every night my pillow was wet from my tears. Put a pan under it. You're not listening to me. You don't care what happens. I wish I'd never been born. Oh, Blanche, what's the matter with you? Why don't you go to sleep? How can I sleep? How can I sleep when I know you don't love me? Who said I don't love you? Well, you never tell me you do. I tell you a thousand times a day, I offered to pay a man $50 for a six-inch tattoo that says, John loves Blanche. Why did you object? Because it would show when I wore my evening gown. Well, I was going to let him do it on me, too. Anything to put a stop to that same question night after night after night. If you'd only say it once of your own accord, I'd never ask you. Okay, I love you. Do you love me only? Yes. When I'm away from you? Yes. Well, say it. I love you only when you're away from me. (laughs) Yes, you do. Maybe that's why you stayed out, cavorting, until 2 o'clock this morning. I wasn't cavorting. I was working. What for? Because I get paid for overtime and we need the money. I have to make a payment on my car next week, $84. (gasps) Where will you get that? Oh, I got it. It's in the desk drawer. No, it isn't. It is, too. I looked yesterday. You didn't look today. Oh, Blanche. Well, there's only $60 in that drawer, John. What happened to the other $24? Don't look at me. Listen, Blanche, there are only two people who have a key to that drawer, you and I. And $24 is missing. Well, let's each put back $12 and say no more about it. I knew it. I knew it. What did you blow it on? Well, I had to pay the phone bill. I made a few long-distance calls. Long-distance calls? Who did you call for $24? My sister, Clara. I was worried. She had a tooth pulled. How could you squander my money like that? I deny myself everything. Do I even buy toothpaste? No. I've been brushing my teeth with a whisk broom. I stick tinfoil in my cavities to save on dentist bills. I've been wearing an upper plate that belongs to my cousin. And she calls New York every five minutes. Don't make such a fuss. Claire is my only sister, and I have a perfect right to call her. Anyway, Barney's in the hospital. Who's Barney? Clara's husband, when he was out looking for a job, he tripped over a bar rail and two cases of bourbon fell on his head. Well, it's the first time the drinks were ever on him. How can you say that? Barney's not cheap. He takes good care of Clara. She has a lovely home, and they've got money for everything. Oh, sure, money for everything. Don't sneer. Last week, Clara had her tonsils taken out and Venetian blinds put in. With a mouth like hers, they could do it. If that bum Barney isn't working, where do they get the dough? Accident insurance. He's collected a fortune on accident insurance. Every time Clara has a baby, he jumps off the roof. What? He doesn't hurt himself too bad, just enough to collect the insurance. You haven't got any, have you, John? No, I don't want to talk about it. I want to sleep. But suppose something happens to you. What if you have an accident and you can't work? We'll starve. We're starving now. That's too bad. It's easy for you to talk like that. If anything happened, I'd be left helpless and destitute. Why don't you get some accident insurance, John? I'll get some next week. You say it, but you won't do it. Why don't you get it now? What? Go on. Get up. Get some accident insurance. 
Blanche, are you out of your mind? It's almost 3 o'clock in the morning. Well, people have accidents all hours of the night. I'm not going to have any accidents tonight. How do you know? Blanche, why don't you let me sleep? Well, just promise me you'll get some accident insurance. Why? Because it's a wonderful protection. Clara told me two weeks ago a man broke his hip and he got $5,000. Last week, Barney fractured his skull and got $10,000. Well, what about it? Next week, you may be the lucky one. Good night, Blanche. Good night, John. I remember the night mom was pounding on her drums. She called me to her side. She said, son, you're growing up. Pretty soon you're gonna drive. And daddy heard the commotion and came came in tap dancing, playing his six string. And they both looked at me and they said, son, before you get behind the wheel of a car, you listen to me. If you're texting while you steer, don't drive. If you've been drinking beer, don't drive. If you're talking on the phone, don't drive. If your tires are bald and it's starting to snow, don't drive. If your foot can't reach the pedal, don't drive. If you're wearing no apparel, don't drive. If you took an illegal prescription, don't drive. And no one understands your diction, don't drive. Don't speed, don't read, don't breathe, don't tweet, don't shave, don't rave, don't wave, don't eat, and don't put no makeup on or shave. You know you're not supposed to do that. If you gotta do something you're not supposed to do, you can go ahead and step on my blue suede shoes. Ah, uh, go ahead and scuff them up. If you're driving with your knees, don't drive. If while you roll, you eat, don't drive. If you don't know how to drive, don't drive. If you've been psychedelicized, don't drive. If you're kissing on your boo. Kissing on you. Don't drive. If you've been drinking at a bar. Don't drive. If there's guns in the car. Don't drive. Don't groom, don't shave, don't tweeze, don't nurse, don't voice these things in your ears or rummage through your purse. Ugh. Don't do that. Huh. If you want something you're not supposed to do, you can go ahead and talk on my food man chew. Go ahead, I don't care. Watch me tear. If you feel like a nap, don't drive. If there's a pooch on your lap, oh, it's dangerous and creepy. If you're feeling really wired, if your license is expired, don't you drive around the town. Something you're not supposed to do You can go ahead and step on my blues way shoes Scuff them up Then go ahead and pull on my Fu Manchu yeah. If you want to do something You want to do something that's good If you're feeling like any of that stuff Don't drive Make sure you got a clear head Ow Ugh. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the Briggs. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write us at TomSumnerProgram.com. Call us at at 810-339-8255 or contact us on Facebook or Twitter. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner program where to go. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. I was telling you a little while ago about my wife, and I don't want you to be confused, but we were, I've been married more, more than once. In fact, I've been married three, three times. But my first two wives each died a very tra- tragic death. My first wife died from eating po- poisoned mushrooms. And my second wife died from a fractured skull. She wouldn't eat her mushroom. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob Hope back once again to tell you it's better to have Pepsi than flowing over your teeth now than to have water running under your bridge later.
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Now, when a virus comes along that's spreading like a plague, and POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague, well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well, unless you want to bid our free society farewell. There is a super bad transmittable contagious awful virus and if we don't act quick and social distance it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until july a super bad transmittable contagious awful virus and if you got a better cough in your arm and if you got a better <coughs> now back in 1918 influenza had its run but half the docks were busy overseas with world war one today we have mass media and scientists to say if you don't want this virus well then stay six feet away super damn important that we practice isolation because we are asymptomatic while it's an incubation will overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation it's super damn important that we practice isolation if we don't do it then we're all gonna die if we don't do it then we're all gonna die and so i hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart because it's already scary and we're only at the start if you get bored just think of the immunocompromised who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized oh super bad transmittable contagious awful virus if we don't act quick and social distance it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine the last until july a super bad transmittable Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. I know of a place where you never get harmed. A magical place with magical charms. Indoors, indoors. Indoors. Take it away. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is the author of the historical thrillers Agents of Sympathy, The Secret Country, and Roman Circus. He is an expat with vast historical and political knowledge. He was born in South Carolina and educated in Europe. He received his uh, B.A. in Modern History at Oxford's Exeter College. He currently resides in Salzburg, Austria, and has a new book. We're going to talk with him um, about his new book, The Poet's War. He is Francis O'Neill, and he joins me by phone. Francis, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Um Francis, I, I, I have to ask a couple things before we drill down on the book, which I'm I'm very anxious to do. Um, there are a couple things because I don't talk to people from Salzburg. Well, this may be my first. Um, but um, how how is the situation with this global pandemic in Salzburg? Salzburg got off very very lately. Austria got off very very lately. Um, I do not, we, we're right, Austria is right next to Lombardy, uh, in Italy, which had it the worst. Salzburg is not very far from Lombardy. The only part of Austria that got it bad there was the Tyrol, where a lot of Italian skiers went. Uh-huh. And they got heavily infected. Salzburg, the festival's not running now, so it's sort of off the tracks. 
And Austrians are basically law-abiding and sensible, so they tended to do individually the right and sensible things. <laughs> but now we've, uh, now we've forgotten what masks are. Uh, even the waiters don't wear masks. Really? So, so there is light at the end of the tunnel, perhaps, for the rest of the world. There really is light at the end of the tunnel. Um, Francis, I, I, I have to ask this because uh, your accent does not sound like someone from South Carolina. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, this is not the first time I've heard that remark. Um, my mother was English, and she was actually half American, but it was the English part that showed. My parents were divorced when I was quite young, and I was raised in England at my grandparents and then Switzerland by my English-speaking mother. So um, it stuck, and it stuck through 30 years of life in Atlanta and South Carolina and Virginia. So obviously it's made of of stone stuff. (laughs) I thought maybe it was something you picked up at Oxford. Well, no, before Oxford. The, um, when I was a little boy, apparently I used to have a, a Charleston accent, which is usually, the usual example is, I've got a late day at half past eight. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, and, and one last thing before we get to the book. Um, what is it like, um, I don't want to say being an expat, because that sounds too corny, but what is it like looking back at the States from somewhere else? Well, I don't really look back at the states. I look back at South Carolina, which I still love. I look back at Virginia, where I had a farm for 30 years. Actually, my I still have it, but my daughter has it. It's a horse farm, and she rides it. I don't know. And I look back at New York, and I look back at it all with great affection. If I look if I try and look at the states, it's sort of a blank to me. But I have very warm feelings for Virginia and South Carolina. But I, but I would think that uh, that news around the world, especially uh, with the BBC and, and uh, maybe Al Jazeera, um, whatever other sources uh, there are, probably maybe even CNN, um, are, are talking about things that that affect the entire country a lot of the time. Yes. I read the Wall Street Journal online almost every morning. Um, I occasionally get the BBC. Al Jazeera is not a big item in the household. Um, And so, yes, I mean, I hear American politics more than I hear about Austrian politics, actually. Does it make you feel better about being in Austria? <laughs> I would say right now, right now it does, yes. So I, I far from turned my back on America. Um, the uh, the Poets' War is is a novel and and um, and and a thriller. Um, where do you base the stories that you write? Whether it was. Um, Agents of Sympathy or The Secret Country, Roman Circus. Um, where do you like to set your stories? 
Well, all of these novels, the my four published novels, if you include Roman Circus, are all based on the same family, the Steers of Massachusetts. Uh, the latter, the, the first three Roman, uh, Roman Circus, Agents of Sympathy of the Secret, Secret Country, were about the son, Giovanni Sears. The Poets' War is about the father, who is, of course, a poet of, of high rank. And so there is that connection between them. Um, I probably write about that, the era anchored to the First World War, though well beyond it. Actually, um, Agents of Sympathy was about the 1960s, but um, because I was raised by my, effectively raised by my grandfather and grandmother, my grandfather was a British general of the First World War, and my early stories and heroes were all of that era. And of course, I'm very much at home in Europe, and particularly in, roughly speaking, Southern Europe. So that is where I tend to feel comfortable setting things. And when you set out to write one of these stories, because you... Um are a student of uh, of history. Um, what is it about the periods of time that you set these stories that make them significant? I think that the period First World War and the time between the wars, which tends to be overlooked, and then of course the Second World War and its ending with the setup of the powers as we still more or less have them now, is, actually, is what made the modern world. So in agents in the Poets' War in particular, I'm trying to write a biography of the part of the century that I think made everything else happen. And... Um, that's the story in me. And and you know, in in so doing, are there lessons to be learned, or are we too far down the road now? I well, the lessons to be learned um, would be very, you know, um, almost Sunday school um, honor. Um, personal courage because a lot of the problem between the wars was as it I think is now cowardice uh, we, there were threats we could see and we sat like rabbits in our holes um, there is no doubt that Hitler could have been stopped when he, he, he reoccupied the Rhine he could have been stopped by France alone and the world was not there so yes, on those uh, on those limits of extraordinary broad lessons, I suppose so. Um, 
this is not a handbook of practical politics by long means. Right. Um, but as you're putting the, the stories together, is and this is kind of a chicken and the egg question, uh, Francis, which came first, the story or the characters? Do you have a story to tell and then cast characters into it? Or do you, do you start with characters and, and then tell a story that would likely happen to them? Well, this is what I do, Tom. I'm a very careful professional novelist, so I write a, um, I write a very thorough outline of the book, and then I put it somewhere, and I forget where I put it, and that's the end of that. And, um, <laughs> so then it becomes the backbone, the backbone of the story and the characters, and where the characters come from, other than my hero, who has a kind of lineage, um, fictional lineage, where my heroes come from, I have very little idea. They, I frequently think them up at night and then think of their interactions at night. And then they take on more reality as I stay with them. Uh, there is a character in the book with the young hero falls very much in love with. She is an American Italian gangster's daughter who wants to be the greatest couturier in Europe. Now, she wasn't even supposed to be in the book, but she came in and said, um, I'm here to see what you can do. <laughs> I'm always fascinated by the creative process, and I I find it interesting that you that you outline very carefully first, even if you set it aside before you start writing. Because I've talked to several writers and successful writers who find that that they start writing and the story kind of tells itself. Well, it really does. I mean, the the book that I'm working on now. Um, he has to, he has to, for his own reasons, sail in a Breton boat from Brittany to the islands of Greece. But the story of the sail um, entirely made itself up as I went along. I used to be a sailor, so that part's easy. Um, he is Breton, Celtic, um, part of Yeats's Celtic a Twilight. He's not persuaded that the old gods and witches don't exist. And um, as far as he's concerned, a, a storm is aimed at him by a god who is acting very logically. But all of this is also sailing. So um, it made itself up, you know, he acquires a servant boy from his cousin, the, the French ambassador in Lisbon, so that changes the sale afterwards somewhat, and it, it just goes along. And Francis, why why thrillers? Who are some of the writers that have inspired you? Uh, well, first thing I would say is they don't write thrillers. Um, <laughs> they... In my youth, I was deeply impressed by Henry James, but that's a long time ago. 
Um, later, I was very much impressed by Walker Percy, Alabama. Um, I was really deeply admire Flannery O'Connor of Georgia. They all, as I try to do, go way beyond the obvious surface, surface, deep into what's probably there if you look into it. Flannery O'Connor writes about a family going on a picnic and it's really about salvation and damnation. Um, Everything she writes ends, ends up being about salvation and damnation because she, she was who was dying of lupus since she was a small girl. So none of them wrote thrillers. Why do I write thrillers? Because I find that the first novel I wrote, unpublished, thank God, was Twaddle. <laughs> it was over-literary, over-literary, over-artificial, and going up a ski lift in Zermatt, I decided how about a spy story about somebody called Wop Sears. Wop because he's Italian, because he, his brother's Italian, and that's what he was called at Chowton Yale. And that book almost wrote itself, and I found that the action kept me steered and gave me something that has to happen next. So that's sort of how it worked. I would say that the first book was really a thriller. The second book was slightly less a thriller. The third book, Roman Circus, was really about um, sex, violence, and Baroque architecture. And um, this one is, in a sense, about the decline of the aristocracy, actually. And it's interesting that you talk about the decline of the aristocracy at a time when a lot of people in uh, in the U.S. and and I suspect in other countries around the world are are saying that that the aristocracy is uh, on the rise, or at least we certainly get that sense when we hear people talk about the one percent versus the ninety nine percent. So you could, but it's different. Uh, the aristocracy may have been about 1%, but it's not the 1%, because the 1% on the whole does not, I mean, individuals in the 1% do, but the 1% does not have the sense of of elegance, to use a rather worn word, of, of honor. It, it doesn't have a sense of it. It doesn't have a sense of its own continuity. Continuity, it's money, not... Not lineage? It, yeah, exactly. Or... or so you... I would, I would even suggest maybe that for, for the modern 1%, their lineage is money. Their lineage on the whole is money. Their lineage is Wall Street or the local equivalent. So were the Medici, but um, they really had to earn their way in through the aristocracy, and they weren't really accepted until they had just about lost it in every other way. Is is the uh, is the aristocracy in decline? Yes, yes, because it has lost its political power, even in England. 
it still has its thought of itself. It still has, particularly in Austria and maybe France, it still has a prestige, but it does not have power and was founded on power. Is is the uh, the the recent um, declaration by uh, Prince Harry and, and his wife that they don't want to be part of the royals? Is is that an example of how that decline is is happening, or or is that a part of that decline? Well, I'm deeply loyal to the Queen, deeply loyal to the Queen, but I would say that Prince Harry is an indication of the thinness of the Windsor intellect. I'm sorry, of the... Of the thinness of the Windsor intellect. Okay. Which is not, I think, particularly outstanding, and I think in him it is particularly unoutstanding. And and what makes you say that? Choices that he's made or is making? Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, the I don't say that that choice argues stupidity. But I think that with the exception of Prince Charles, who is something very, very different, I think that the young royals have, on the whole displayed stupidity and also could be very spoiled it tends to happen when you have prestige but no real power and Charles is different how? Charles is a thoughtful man um, Charles is my contemporary we have slight connections through Polo when I was much much younger He's a serious man. He takes his position in the British Constitution faithfully and very seriously. Um, I think that his mother has reigned too long, which is hardly her fault, but I think that if Charles had become king a little earlier, he would have been an exceedingly good king. That's interesting because a lot of uh, a lot of pop, pop culture seems to want to make sort of a caricature out of Prince Charles. He's not a caricature. I mean, yes, he is. Um, I mean, I would. I God, I would hate to be held up to the spotlight that he's held up. To. I can't imagine anything intimidating. So yes, he's got an awesome, stupid remarks. Um, but he is, on the other hand, he has deep thoughts about architecture, which he regards as important, as do I. Um, he definitely thinks about the constitutional status that he is inheriting. He is um, always courteous. He is always intellectually honest. I admire him. I admire him very much. More with author Francis O'Neill, straight ahead. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now. 
The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. They say singing can help you remember things, so here's some tips for parents out there during these tough times. Make sure your kids wash their hands for 20 seconds after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside. Virtual playdates, social and physical distancing can help save lives. Tell them they're safe and show your love and pride. Yes, we'll get through this together. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the Briggs. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us, at 810-339-8255 or contact us on Facebook or Twitter. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner program where to go. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. Is a major factor in dancing like a retard. May cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila!
Well, I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with author Francis O'Neill straight ahead. In the book, The Poet's War, what, what is the basic synopsis for The Poet's War? Basic, basic synopsis is that Alistair Steele, whom we meet as a very young man, well, about 17, um, from Boston, he has an Irish fox-hunting mother. His father is a Boston lawyer who will end on the Supreme Court of Massachusetts. Um, She leaves that husband and takes her son to Rome where she she grew up with her father who in fact was British Secret Service. The son becomes uh, they get mixed up in the First World War Italian-Austrian War because she, she falls in love with an Italian colonel. She's a, a very beautiful and rather impetuous woman. Um, they get caught up in the retreat from Caporetto, which is a, a nightmare. His girlfriend died of, uh, dies of the Spanish flu. His mother almost loses her arm because she is driving an ambulance and a shell hits it. He very nearly dies himself of the Spanish flu. And then that part of the book's over. He goes to America, goes to to West Point, though that is off stage, and comes back as a poet about on the level of Ezra Pound. And briefly, he's in Paris, then he goes back to Italy, which ended up leaving a very bad taste in his mouth. He marries the his best friend from the last time in Italy, is the Marchese Ugolino Ferrara. He marries Marchese's sister Octavia. As a family, they are half German and half Italian. Um, Octavia is brought up mainly in Germany and hates the Nazis. Um, Alistair takes a very dim view of the fascista. They become double agents for the United States. Uh, They are nearly arrested, but they get out of it just he then goes and fights with the uh, partisans very near their own estate in the mountains above Luca, and they both make it through the war. And he he firmly believes that the new Europe will be founded on chivalry, um, knights in merriment with St. Francis, and of course he's out of his mind. That doesn't happen at all. How? So, in a sense, it's a tragedy. But go ahead, please. How how um, much do you have to research, and how important is that research to setting the time and place and events with integrity? I researched the Italian part of World War One 
minutely. I researched the history of, of fascism in Italy, which I did not know very well, also in great detail. I already knew the Italian landscape, manners, houses, because I half grew up there, so that part was easy. I like to think I have a, a feel for Italians. I mean, they might say that I'm out of my mind, but I think I do. <laughs> um, I, I speak Italian. And um, so, and I also researched the um, partisans. At that time, I lived in, in Parma, which is very close to the action there. And there was a, a woman who ran a wonderful Italian adelius specialized a pastor and so forth, whose father and older brothers had been partisans, and she told me a lot. So, yes, all of that I researched. Um, Italy was sort of there for me. How long does it take you to um, go from the, uh, the, the kernel of an idea for a book to it's finally out? I, it's completely different for me with every book. Um, the first one, Agents of Sympathy, went rather fast. The second one, um, Secret, Secret County, for some reason, went much more slowly. The third one, Roman Circus, was rather a romp, though I think it was uh, my best book until now. This one took forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. But then there were years in there that I didn't really write. That I, I sailed the Atlantic, that I, I hunted in Africa. I started a horse farm and then came back to it several years later in a slightly different form. After which it went reasonably well. I, as we get close to the end of our time, Francis, I'm having so much fun talking with you. You're delight. Um, I get the. I, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and about your work, past, present, and future. Uh, do you have a website? Yes, I do have a website. It was set up for me by a charming lady in. San Diego. Unfortunately, I don't understand it um, because <laughs> I am an infant when it comes to these things. I mean, the fact that I'm talking to you on Skype is a bloody miracle, actually. <laughs> um, but it is the Francis O'Neill website, O'Neill, O apostrophe N E I L L. Twelves are important. And the Francis is important because my first three books were, for complicated reasons, published as Frank O'Neill, which I hate. But I am now back to Francis, which I like. So it's important that the website is Francis O'Neill Novelist. And and I'll ask about the website. Um, you have someone that keeps that up to date with the things that you're doing and so on? Yes, I do. Um, she is very, very good. She seems to, to have a um, a blog of how people should be able to use and profit 
from their websites. Um, uh, um, it is called um, um, Monkey Sea Business. And oh, okay. From that name, as you actually it's in San Diego. Excellent, excellent. Well, Francis, thank you so so much for uh, spending this time with me and and skyping over from Salzburg so we could chat a little bit. And um, best of luck with your book, The Poet's War, and with whatever is next for you. Thank you very much, uh, Tom. I really enjoyed this, and hope to do this again one day. Okay. Well. Keep me in mind. As things uh, okay. develop, I would love to talk with you more. Okay, thanks. Goodbye, Dusa. Goodbye. Goodbye. That was uh, Francis O'Neill, author of The Poet's War and uh, the historical thrillers uh, Agents of Sympathy, The Secret Country, and Roman Circus. He lives in Salzburg, Austria, but as you could tell from our conversation, is uh, well-versed in a great number of parts of the world and uh what what uh what an interesting conversationalist we're going to take a short break we'll be back with more of the tom sumner program actually that wraps things up for today's edition of the tom sumner program thanks uh, again to author uh Francis O'Neill, and earlier my guest, uh, former White House staffer Mark Everson, uh, both delightful people to uh, talk with and, and speak to. I hope you enjoyed these conversations. I want to say thanks to my uh, co-host, Andrea Sutton, as well. And uh, tomorrow is Wednesday, which means it's uh, armchair politics. If it's Wednesday, it's armchair politics. Political operative Bobby Clayton Walton will be joining our roundtable regulars, Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left, and uh, longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right for two hours of commentary and analysis about recent headlines and events from local, state, and national news, plus uh, some quotes and the coveted X-Files. And we'll start the show out tomorrow, Andrea and I, maybe with a couple of calls uh, from listeners at 810-339-8255. And during the 9 o'clock hour, or the first hour of our show, we'll be talking with constitutional law professor Brendan Beery about recent Supreme Court decisions. That's smoking George Winters tickling the ivories, letting me know it's time to head down the hall to the living room, but I'll meet you back here tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. In the meantime, stay safe and uh, stay dry, and good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.